0: please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're in verses 10 through 12 today. Of all the things we didn't get to do that we were looking forward to this year, one of those events that we might have overlooked or forgotten about at this point is the Olympics. This was the year of the Olympics. The 2020 Olympics were to be held in Tokyo, Japan this year. How many of you remembered that? (laughs) But now... The 2020 Olympics are scheduled to begin on July 23rd, 2021. So the 2020 Olympics are going to be held in 2021. And I felt badly for those athletes. The Olympic Games are only held uh, once every four years, and those athletes work so hard for that moment. For some of them, that moment lasts only about 10 seconds. And because the quality of the athletes is so high at these games these races and everything else they compete in, uh, even the the possibility of aging one more year could have negative consequences for some of these athletes. Uh, The younger athletes may benefit from it as they kind of step into their prime, but the older ones, they might lose a hundredth of a second of a step. And that's all it might take for them to miss that medal stand. Uh, The Wheaties box, all the endorsements, the, the 15 minutes of fame, all of that. Those athletes, they work so hard each and every day, year after year, for that one moment. And it can be a lot of fun to watch, right? Uh, we love to root on our men and women as they as they compete against athletes from around the world. And there's certainly nothing wrong with training to win a race or to win a team sport or anything like that. There's a great deal of good that can come out of all that. Uh, but for a lot of them... Even when they do win, once that moment comes and goes, then what? Many of them struggle with what to do next, and then the, just the letdown after the fact is so great. And we know this that that gold medal, as great of a honor it is as it is, that gold medal. It turns out it's it's just a well crafted hunk of gold tied to a ribbon that's put around her neck and four years from now or three years from now for these athletes the next time someone else might just be wearing the newest version of it and as time marches on all those in endorsements all the praise of man all the sense of security you might have a thought that you had from your athletic achievements it wanes doesn't it it falls away as does your body. You have to, uh, to do something else just to keep going, just to keep living and to make a living. They have to go to what's next. And you might be able to pull out the paper clippings years down the road or, or Google your name and, and see all those old pictures, but, but one day, that one moment, it just won't matter as much as the accumulation Of all the other moments that make up your life. And then, there's all those moments in the future that would be put together. Moment after moment after moment after moment for all eternity. we often think about life in moments, don't we? When we were little... Or for some of you who are little here today, we thought about that first day of school. Perhaps many kiddos today and for the rest of this message now are going to be thinking about with eager expectation Christmas morning, what Christmas morning is going to be like. Uh, We thought about losing that first tooth or riding our bikes without training wheels the first time. As we grew a little older, we thought about things like our first paycheck, uh, getting our driver's license driving without mom or dad in the car with us. We thought about graduation day, uh, first crush maybe, and all of those things in that order, right? Parents, that's how that's going to go. Uh, many of us are looking forward to New Year's Eve as if when the clock strikes midnight, everything that is 2020 is just going to vanish into thin air. I saw, I saw a meme this week. It was a guy looking at his clock. It was 1159, 1231, 2020, 1159. And the next picture, he's, he's in despair. The clock just says 1200, you know, 01. And the date of the calendar is 13, 1, Just never gonna go away. But we have all these kinds of moments that we either remember fondly, Or we look forward to or hope for. There's those kinds of moments. We also have moments that we'd like to forget if we could. Moments in the future perhaps near or far off that we'd fear. Not look forward to. They might make us anxious when we think about them really. And this is where I want to encourage us today. There is a moment coming for every Christian that will have an eternal positive impact and outcome an effect that will never wear off will never wane will never lose its impact never lose its power this moment is the moment we are changed when all our sin is removed and we see jesus face to face can you imagine that moment Right now, in this world, in this life, in our flesh, there is still a battle uh, being waged in our hearts. As Christians, we want to do right. We, We want to grow. And there's times when we also don't. When we don't want to change. We kind of like the false sense of security that some of the treasures of this world has to offer us. That it affords even the false sense of security. Maybe that it's called the praise of man. There's a battle, isn't there? We want these things. We want those things. We know this is right. We know these are wrong, but our desires get pulled, don't they? But there will come a day when all the fighting in our hearts is over. All the selfishness, all the competing, all the doubting, any shred of unbelief is gone, taken away. And we will see Jesus in His presence. And not be terrified because of our sin. Because we will know that he has removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. And we will then only want to do what is right and good and pure. That will be entirely pleasing to us. We will be entirely pleased. Joy filled. Contented happy, free, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. What a moment. What a moment. And that moment will never wear off. Never. For eternity. We won't just enjoy that moment and say, wow, that was fun. Now what? That moment will redefine every moment from then on, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So that moment bears a great deal of gravity, doesn't it? It is incredibly significant. Uh, more significant, really, than any other moment in this life. Perhaps with the exception, maybe maybe we would call this a tie with the moment that the Spirit opens our eyes and, and gives us new life, being born again in Christ. You can't have that moment, being perfectly sanctified on that day, without this moment of putting your faith and trust in Christ, shed blood for your forgiveness for your sin in this life. And I would say to you, if you've never trusted Christ in Christ, shed blood alone for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not called on the Lord as your Lord and Savior, please do so today. We won't have that moment, that day, without this moment of our salvation. Call on the name of the Lord. Be saved. But that moment though, that moment when we will be changed, made perfect by the grace of God, is a moment of great magnitude. And I want to argue this point today uh, for our benefit in our walk with Christ. The moments that we desire or the moments we dread the most Those moments will be the moments that have the most bearing on how we live, on the decisions we make, the things we do. We might long for a moment. Uh, You tell a kid that Santa Claus is coming to town, and he or she knows they better watch out. They better not cry. They better not pout. And you know why, right? Because Santa Claus is coming to town. Now that moment now, Not going to reveal any secrets today. (laughs) That moment can motivate them, right? And who here just loves it when they see those blue and red lights flashing in the rear view mirror? Mm. (laughs) One of the worst moments is that moment you realize, oh man, I was driving too fast and that police officer noticed before I did. And they're doing something about it. That's a moment we dread. And when we think of it in advance, when we think of the dread of that moment in advance, what do we do? We slow down. We slow down. We pay attention to the speed limit and we follow it to avoid that dreadful moment and the fine. The dreading of the moment or the eager expectation of the moment. Either way, it motivates us. We do what we do because we want what we want or what we don't want. What matters more than the dread or the joyful anticipation, not so much whether I don't want it or whether I do want it, what matters most is the weight of the expectation. Whichever one is heavier is the one I'm going to go after. Christians, It's right to dread persecution. We don't look forward to it. It doesn't get us psyched up and excited. We don't run to people who we know will hurt or mock or even kill a Christian and say, Hey, guess what I am over here. No, we dread the idea. Persecution itself is sinful and it hurts. We don't get excited about it. Not the persecution itself. But here's what we do. When the weight of our eager longing for that day, when we see Jesus face to face, and the eternity that follows it in utter joy, peace, freedom, righteousness, when the weight of, of our joyful expectation of that day and the weight of the gravity of the glory of God outweighs, outpulls the dread we might have of mockery, slander, even physical violence against us. When the scales are tipped in the right direction, we will be able to endure persecution be encouraged in it through it even because of it because our savior and lord was persecuted for righteousness sake and if we are being persecuted as well it only confirms the fact we will be with our savior and lord and be made to be just like him in that day Does that make sense? Do you see what has to happen in our hearts and minds to be ready for such a time? And as we go through this passage today and talk about persecution, which I'm about to do, please understand that if all we do today is talk about persecution, it may only add to our dread of it. But what we really need to be convinced of is the end of these verses. The promise of the kingdom. And the promise of reward and rejoicing. The promise of perfect fellowship with God. Church, look to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. May God cause his face to shine upon you. May we behold the glory of our Lord even this morning as we talk about this final beatitude. Because feeling the weight of that glorious day brought about by our glorious Father, by the will of our glorious Father, purchased by our glorious Savior. Feeling that weight each and every day will fuel us. It will be the fuel that pushes us through those moments when we fear persecution. Fear uh, simply losing the praise of man for even just a moment. Sometimes that's all it takes. To cause us to sin. When we are looking to Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. That is when we can also look in the face. Of a persecutor. And remain happy. In Jesus. And therefore. Faithful to Jesus. In Matthew 5. Verses 10 through 12. Jesus teaches us this. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This final beatitude is definitely unique from the rest. of uh, The first four characteristics of the Christian, which is what these are, the characteristics of the Christian, which Jesus taught uh, here in these beatitudes, they were in regard to the inner person, the heart of the Christian. And the heart of the Christian is poor in spirit, aware of our depravity, uh, mourning, distraught by our depravity, meek, surrendered to the lordship of christ and hungering and thirsting for righteousness Uh, we were once slaves to sin in our depravity but now christ has bought us freed us and so now we are freed to desire from the heart to follow hard after him paul said it this way in second corinthians 5 9 whether at home or away i kind of like to say it this way dead or alive we make it our aim our ambition To be pleasing to Him. Uh, These Beatitudes are all characteristics of the heart, the inner man, which result in outward actions, such as the next three Beatitudes, being merciful, showing mercy to others because we have been shown mercy. Uh, We are pure in heart. The desires of this world, the double-mindedness, it holds less and less sway in our values and our desires, which results in change and growth. We change and grow in righteous living. It works out of us. And we become peacemakers because God made peace with us by the blood of the cross of Christ. Because of that, we look at life and the world around us, our neighbors, through a different lens. And we desire to be at peace with all and to make peace by pointing people to Jesus, reconciling our conflicts and reconciling others who are in need of repentance. Of forgiveness, of restoration. Since our Father is a peacemaker, remember it makes perfect sense that His children would also become peacemakers, and not peacemakers. So all these attitudes, up uh, be attitudes up until now, have been working from the inside out. But this last one is different. All the other beatitudes show us what Christians are and/or are becoming. As we grow progressively in Christ likeness. But this final beatitude shows what happens to Christians because of who they are and because of what they're becoming. And just like we become peacemakers because our Father's a peacemaker, we also will be persecuted, seeing that our Savior and Lord was persecuted. And as it says in verse 12, also our brothers and sisters the Old Testament saints, even the prophets, who were also persecuted for the same reason. They were being like Jesus. Righteousness. That's the reason. So for the rest of this message this morning, I want to answer three questions. Number one, what kinds of persecution will we see? We're going to see this in this passage. What kinds of persecution will we see? And number two... What will bring about our persecution? What's going to make it happen? And so in the sense there, we also see what are the things that happen that we do that make other people not so happy with us really isn't persecution. Okay, what brings about persecution? And number three, why should persecution make us happy? We kind of already touched on this, but we'll finish out with that. Why should persecution make us happy? So number one, When we do see persecution, because persecution isn't constant. This when could be whenever. But when we do see persecution, what kinds will we see? And in verse 11, we see three methods, three types of persecution. The first one Jesus mentions is reviling. We will be reviled. And this word basically means being insulted to your face. It means to speak disparagingly of a person. At the person This is not talking badly about a person. This is speaking badly to the person And when a person reviles you they are speaking in an assaulting way to your face Calling you out perhaps uh, Mocking you making fun of you being hateful towards you in their speech and we might say in this day and age uh, to your face or In your inbox in your text message over the phone, etc The point being This is not behind your back stuff This person is directing their reviling right at you for your ears and for your eyes A good example would be of jesus himself leading up to and at the cross He was reviled and remember he did not revile in return They called him the king of the jews in mockery They told him to get himself down off the cross They asked him to predict who was striking and beating him as if to ask for a display of this miraculous power they'd heard about. They persecuted Jesus, in part, by reviling him. The second word Jesus used in verse 11 is the word persecute. This word means to harass, to abuse, to chase or drive away. And with this word, the idea is more of a physical action. This is not verbal harassment Or verbal abuse this is physical We could say that abel way back in genesis 4 In the first family was the first person to ever be persecuted in this way Because his own brother cain killed him only took that second generation Daniel was thrown into the lion's den Shadrach meshach and abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace Stephen was stoned to death the apostle paul was stoned beaten whipped eventually beheaded. Uh, historically, it's said that Paul was beheaded in Rome. And actually, the only disciple or apostle who, it seems, was not put to death was the apostle John, though he did die while in exile, which would be another form of physical persecution. Uh, so this kind of persecution would involve uh, obvious things like uh, physical violence, even to the point of death, but it could also include things like being arrested Incarcerated, being fired from your job, maybe being robbed or people destroying your uh, property, your possessions, or being even excluded, given the cold shoulder. These things could all be some form of, in vari- varying severity, different degrees, some form of persecution. Uh, the third word, in this, or in this instance, a phrase that Jesus used to expound on persecution was to utter All kinds of evil against you. And as you might expect, these are words that are said or typed or published or whatever that are not directed at you, but that are instead spread around, even behind your back, about you. Not at you, but about you to others. We would call this slander. Slander is when others say false things about you to tear you down And damage your reputation In rome the early church faced this kind of persecution when the romans accused the christians of being cannibals Of course because they were supposedly eating flesh and drinking blood Remember in in communion when we when we eat the crackers and drink the juice it represents the body of christ It represents the blood of christ We're not actually eating him Okay Uh, This idea of cannibalism they were also blamed, the Christians, for the fire that burned down much of Rome. Of course, the Christians believed in that God was going to judge the world by fire one day, so of course it had to have been them. Now, these accusations were false. Evil was being spoken of them that wasn't true. And this distinction is significant and brings up our second question. Uh, this persecution of uttering all kinds of evil can be called slander in the sense that they are false statements. If we do evil and people say we did evil, that's not persecution. That's just calling it what it is. If evil things are uttered about us and we have done those evil things, that's not persecution. It's only persecution when it is for righteousness' sake. So question two, what will bring about our persecution Uh, whenever it may come? Whenever it might be happening, what will be the cause? Well, the answer is righteousness. Doing and saying what is right. Not preferred, not my opinion. What is right? And for the right reason. Okay, so we don't get a pass for saying what is right in a crude or demeaning or derogatory way. Righteousness includes speaking the truth in Love. So the persecution that Jesus is speaking of here at the Sermon on the Mount is that which we receive as a result of righteousness, of being like Him. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 16, Peter writes this Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So even just right there, when persecution does come, we shouldn't say, I can't believe this. How is this possible? Don't be surprised by this, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That day, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil an evildoer. Or it says here even. As a meddler, one who involves themselves in a matter without invitation, a busybody. That's what a meddler is. It says, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, the idea being for righteousness sake, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, meaning the name of Christ. So now think about this for a second. Abel. What did Abel do to make Cain want to kill him? Did he mock Abel? Did he post his stupid sacrifice on social media and brag about how awesome he was instead? No, no. All Abel did was sacrifice to God in worship the way God instructed him to. And because God accepted Abel's offering and not his own, Cain killed his own brother. Why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den? Did he start a smear campaign across the empire to tell people how dumb the king was and how dumb his rules were? Did he write an opinion article in the Persian Gazette? Nope. But when a human being who should have been praying to God told Daniel he wasn't allowed to pray to God, Daniel prayed. And those other wise men, we might say quote-unquote wise men, if you remember, they set that whole thing up because they knew Daniel would want to do the right thing. Why were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace? Did they set up a secret mission under the cover of night to knock over that statue that had been set up for worship in that Gentile nation? No. Did they threaten the other Jews who were bowing bowing down because they were scared of persecution? They didn't even do that. All they did was refuse. They themselves would not bow down. They did what was right. Why was Stephen stoned? In Acts 6, it says that uh, the Jews even tried to get him to say something wrong, and he didn't do it. So they made up a story that he was speaking blasphemies. They slandered him. That's when the persecution started right there. And they said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. That'd be hard to do for anybody, to never cease to say anything like that. That that over-embellishment of this charge, you'd think, would have given it away, but they didn't care. They knew why he was there. And when Stephen was brought before the high priest and the Jewish leaders, his defense at these accusations was to summarize the Old Testament, to share what the Bible says, and rebuke these leaders for doing what so many Jews had done before, throughout the history of Israel, as recorded in Scripture. Namely, they were rejecting God. He told them they were rejecting God. And it was when Stephen confirmed that he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father, that moment, that's when the Jewish leaders had truly had enough. They threw Jesus outside of the city and they stoned him to death. Stephen was officially killed for rebuking the Jewish leaders for rejecting God not policies and procedures, but for rejecting God and believing for rejecting the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And one of those Jewish leaders was Saul, who would later believe and become the Apostle Paul. And I think one of the most helpful events in the ministry of Paul that will help us uh, to think through this principle of being persecuted for righteousness' sake uh, would be the riot that started in Ephesus so please go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts 19. Acts chapter 19. And in Acts 19, starting in verse 8, and we'll go through different chunks of this chapter here, these these verses are going to tell us what Paul did in Ephesus, what the response was, and all that followed, okay? So Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 8, says, He entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of god. So what did paul speak boldly about the gospel of jesus christ But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief Speaking evil of the way and the way just means uh, christianity now there's a group today called the way that is a cult So watch out for that today. Okay, but they would they started calling christians the way in that time So they're speaking evil of these Christians before the congregation at the synagogue. And Paul, he says, he withdrew from them and took the disciples, those who had believed, with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so among other things like healing people that happened there in Ephesus too, what what was Paul's main action in Ephesus? What was he doing that was seeing people converted? He was teaching the Bible. He was preaching the gospel. And then this teaching, this preaching, and, and through the miracles that God allowed Paul to do on this occasion, verses 17 through 20 tell us what the result was. So verse 17, This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. It doesn't say they came to tell everybody how messed up Ephesus was and how terrible everybody else was. They were confessing their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burn them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So miracles, teaching and preaching God's word, and God worked through that teaching and preaching in people's hearts. They were repenting. They were no longer worshiping false gods. They were getting rid of their own old, evil, sinful stuff. They weren't grabbing everybody else's stuff and bringing it. They brought their own stuff. And the message of God's word is now spreading throughout the region, around Ephesus and Asia Minor. And then the response, verses 23 through 28. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Can you believe he would say such a thing? And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed uh, from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see what's happening? Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And then a riot started. And had Paul's companions not held him back, you know what Paul did when he saw a crowd. He was going to run right into that crowd and go preach the gospel. They knew what the result would be, his friends, and evidently it wasn't Paul's time to go quite yet but what we need to see here is this. Think, go back even to the disciples. Right after the resurrection, right after the ascension, at Pentecost, the Spirit comes, and what did they preach? Death to Rome! Free Israel! No. Did the apostles all become zealots and political leaders? No. What did Christ say even to Pontius Pilate? My kingdom is not of this earth. Now Jesus is coming. And he will be king and he will rule and reign. But he's not here yet. And right now his kingdom, our kingdom, is not of this world. Paul was preaching the word of God. Peter preached the gospel. They were leading people to Christ. People were repenting, putting off the old man, putting on the new in their own personal lives. And that change brought about the change in Ephesus. Do you see the order of events? They didn't go and take all the idols out of the idol shop downtown and burn them all. They didn't go and fight with all the silversmiths. These converts who heard and believed the gospel brought their own sinful things and got rid of them. And they quit shopping for more. The demand was gone. Then it became an issue. Do you see? This was not righteousness by force. Not even righteousness by a slight majority vote. This was not, we know how this place ought to be run, and if you don't like it, you better change or else. That was not the mission of the church. No way. This was a follower of Jesus, pointing lost sinners to Jesus, and then seeing them transformed. And when righteousness was on the move, enemies of righteousness, slaves to sin, responded with persecution. Do you know what the early church did? In the midst of the Roman Empire, in the midst of threats from their government on their livelihood and safety, they sought to abstain from personal sin. Sins of commission, sins of omission. They wanted to be hard workers. They wanted to be honest people. They were to seek to make it right when they fell short. They sought to obey God in their daily lives, just like we want to do. And not just to not do bad things. You don't just sit around and not do bad things. That would be pretty boring, right? And we would end up doing bad things. Not just to not do bad things, but to do right things. Righteousness. Pursuing righteousness in their own lives. They shared God's word with others, God's word. They shared the gospel with people. They shared God's word with the lost in evangelism. They shared together in God's word with their brothers and sisters in Christ in discipleship. They shared in fellowship in the word and in service, growing together as a family, as a church, in godliness, in righteousness, in and with their local churches. And they sought to love and show kindness, to their neighbors, being at peace with everyone as much as possible. That's what the commandment is. Even loving our enemies, returning good for evil. This is what the church is supposed to do. This is who the church is supposed to be, like Jesus. Uh, please understand this. Paul was not persecuted for demonizing people he disagreed with. Paul was persecuted for evangelizing them, for sharing the gospel with them. But we demonize people. The world knows that game, and they'll just demonize us back. That's not persecution. When we love them and point them to Jesus, we might get different responses. Some will reject, some will persecute, some will believe. That's where it is. Remember, Paul had been a persecutor of the church. He knew exactly what they needed. He knew what they needed. It wasn't to put him in a half Nelson and force him into righteousness. They needed the gospel. And if it meant he had to suffer, rejoice and be glad. By God's grace, much of the time, Paul remembered that his greatest win was not becoming a successful Pharisee. Not even to overthrow an evil empire If anything, he would have loved the chance to preach the gospel to caesar As was evidenced by all of his trials in the book of acts And the reason paul would have wanted to do that is because paul remembered what the greatest joy and the greatest satisfaction could be He sought the greatest happiness he could ever experience And this was our question number three Why should persecution make us happy? happy And here's the answer, because it shows us whose we are and where we're headed. Persecution shows us whose we are and where we're headed. It shows us whose we are because Jesus was persecuted for righteousness as well. In John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Christian, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. And I just want to answer this one final question, and then I'll be done. Sometimes people can struggle with the idea of looking forward to reward. Should I really be pursuing pleasure? Should I really be pursuing getting something? It just feels so selfish. But no, please, please understand this. God wants us to rejoice. God wants us to be satisfied to be pleased. He wants us to pursue pleasure. The question is not whether it's right to pursue pleasure and satisfaction and joy. The question is, what gives us the greatest pleasure? What gives us? What, do we, what have we believed is going to make us satisfied? What do we believe will give us joy? And then we can say this again. If our greatest win, if our greatest joy is Him, then our rejoicing is worship. It's worship. If we can't hardly wait to receive our reward from Him that He gives to us by His grace, that pleases Him. That's worship. Christ told us to pursue it. In this very passage today, we are encouraged to look forward to it. So it isn't the persecution that makes us happy. Not persecution itself. It's not the persecution in itself and the suffering of it that causes us to rejoice. It's the guarantee of future grace. Of reward. Of eternal life. Of sinless perfection. Of perfect fellowship with God that all of that represents. That day, that moment will be more Wonderful, more joyful, more everything good that we could ever imagine. May the weight of that day, the weight of the goodness and the glory of God, motivate us to pursue righteousness, to enjoy righteousness in this life, to follow hard after Christ to love him with our whole hearts, and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And whenever persecution might come, as a result of that, as God gives you grace to endure those moments, right? Those moments in time, rejoice and be glad. Because great is your eternal reward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for these precious promises. uh, Won for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Given to us by faith that you so graciously give to us. God, you truly deserve all honor and glory and praise in this. God, I pray for your uh, grace in this as well that we might look at the things in this life and the people in this world and the the episodes and events and arguments that might so quickly grab our attention and our focus. God, help us to see what really matters most. And even other causes we might jump into, God, that we would go into those things in righteousness. Knowing that even in the midst of those discussions, the greater good is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that person's salvation. That we would love them, that we would pursue righteousness. God, I pray that you would help us. We we see people right in front of us. We see crowds. We see students in our classrooms. We see coworkers. We see and feel and talk to these people. And the weight of the desire for them to approve of us and to like us, maybe even to worship us a little bit, that's strong in our hearts. God, help us to not see those people as objects of affection to consume, but Lord, that we would see them as souls who need Jesus, who need what we so graciously have that we we might love them and not use them that we would love them and share the gospel with them. And Lord, when tough times come, when hurts come, when rejection comes, when persecution comes, thank you, Lord, that it is just a moment that will never compare to the eternity eternity, that is our reward of being with you. So God, may we look to that day, be encouraged by it, follow hard after you in this life. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.